also excited, perhaps uh, even somewhat tense, when we see these major events falling into place as they fulfill prophecy. This weekend, the United States Congress is negotiating legislation to bail out failed financial institutions and prevent what some call a financial calamity that will affect the world financial markets. So there's a great sense of urgency. Let's turn to Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter, Deuteronomy 28. Sometimes when we look at what is happening to the nation, we might get a little selfish and wondering, well, what's going to happen to me? And, of course, we perhaps have already experienced that, not having enough gasoline for our automobiles or our vehicles, and we wonder what's going to happen. Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter, verse 43, one of the prophecies with which we're familiar The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. Deuteronomy 28.43. We owe trillions of dollars to other nations. China is one of our great lenders, and we owe China billions of dollars. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be be the head, and you shall be the tail." Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the eternal your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. So we need to be obeying God. Is our nation obeying God? Are we following the moral principles of the Bible? Verse 52 of Deuteronomy 28. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls, now listen to this, in which you trust, come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land, which you, the eternal, your God, has given you. God has given us all these blessings, and yet we are going to pay the penalty for our disobedience, for our selfishness, and for our lack of trust in God. Nations around the world put their trust in armies. They put their trust in fortifications, modern military technology, and the high and fortified walls in which our nation's trust will come down, God says. Our nation's trust in military and financial institutions. But in what should our nation's trust? You'll find on our dollar bill, and if you have a dollar bill with you or a coin, that is a United States currency. Uh, here's uh, my last two dollars I have, but uh, <laughs> at least uh, on the front it has a United States one dollar. But on the back, right above the word one, it says, In God we trust. That's our national motto. Other nations trust in God. There's one other nation that has that same national motto. Our Spanish department should know what it is. It's uh, Nicaragua, has that same exact motto, only in Spanish, en Dios confiamos, in God we trust. There are other national mottos that acknowledge God in their way. Brunei, always in service with God's guidance. The Dominican Republic, Dios, patria, libertad, Spanish for God, country, liberty. Ecuador, Dios, patria y libertad. El Salvador, Dios, Union, Libertad, Spanish for God, Union, and Liberty. And Fiji, I won't try to uh, pronounce their language, but it's fear God and honor the Queen. Grenada, or Grenada, ever conscious of God, we aspire and advance as one people. And Jordan, uh, Arabic for God, country, sovereign. And Liechtenstein, für Gott, Fürst und Vaterland. That is German for God, Prince, and Fatherland. And then Monaco, or Monaco, with God's help, Deo Juvante. Uh, Then the Philippines, uh, Tagalog is the language, for God, people, nature, and country. Uh, Vanuatu, we heard uh, in the announcements. Uh, It's in the Bislama language. Let us stand firm in God, in Samoa. Uh, God be the foundation of Samoa. But will all these nations trust in God in the future and the trying times that they will face and we will face? Will we always nationally and individually trust in God with our whole heart until the end of the age? In God we trust is the official motto 
of the United States in Nicaragua. In a publication from the United States Treasury called Fact Sheets, Currency, Coins, and History of In God We Trust, since 1938, all United States coins bear the inscription, In God We Trust. It's been in continuous use on the one-cent coin since 1909. And then as a joint resolution of the 84th Congress, July 30th, 1956, the Congress declared, In God We Trust is the national motto of the United States. And it first appeared on paper money in 1957. Just yesterday I received a, the magazine, which I've just subscribed to, the Smithsonian. And the Smithsonian Institute, you know, in Washington, D.C., has many, many museums and uh, exhibits. And this one is about uh, James B. Longacre. He was the official designer of the uh, coin that actually is going to be a $20 gold double eagle with the words, Our trust is in God. I'll read uh, here from this particular ad. The design was shelved as Congress debated over the inclusion of the motto on U.S. coins. Instead of appearing on the $20 gold double eagle, the first coin to utilize the motto was Long Acres' two-cent piece with the motto, Shortened in God We Trust. And so now this uh, numismatic company is producing uh, silver coins of no uh, official American currency value, but it has Long Acres' original motto, Our Trust is in God. But do we really trust in God? Does our nation... The British Empire, or former, former British Empire, the Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand, uh, do all of those nations trust in God? Or are we becoming hypocritical nations? Nations that profess godliness and righteousness, but nations that practice lawlessness and disobedience to God. Let's turn to Isaiah, the 10th chapter, Isaiah 10. We know Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, pronounce God's judgments on disobedience nations, and particularly his nation. Isaiah, the 10th chapter, Isaiah 10. And of course, all along this sermon, brethren, be asking yourself, do I trust in God, and how much do I trust in God, and how is that exemplified in my life? Isaiah 10 and verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like mire in the streets. Yet he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. So God says Assyria is the rod of his anger, and he's going to send it against an ungodly nation. The King James Version has hypocritical nation. What is hypocrisy? What is a hypocritical nation? It's a nation that professes righteousness and yet behaves in ungodly and evil ways. But God loves all human beings and he's going to punish ungodly nations and that's our nation as well unless we repent. But as God's people, we, the church, as God's nation, we're the Israel of God, as uh, Dr. Winnell mentioned last week, Galatians 6 and verse 16. And we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. You know that, Ephesians 3 and verse 20. So we must put our trust in God. The title of the sermon is simply, In God We Trust. What is trust? The uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary has this definition. Assured reliance on character, ability, strength, or truth of someone or something. One in which confidence is placed. So we place confidence in what, is our question. What do you place confidence in? Turn to Deuteronomy, the seventh chapter. Deuteronomy 7. This has been a very encouraging verse to me. Realize that God is the same yesterday, or yesterday, Today and forever, that's Christ in uh, Hebrews 13, 8. But God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, starting with verse 9. But what is God like? Therefore know that the eternal your God, He is God. I think all of us know that. 
and know it deeply. He is God, the faithful God. You may want to circle or underline that phrase, the faithful God. God expects us to be faithful, but He is faithful, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments, and repays those who hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with Him who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. Therefore, Deuteronomy 7, verse 11, You shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. So God is the faithful God. That's, to me, very comforting and very encouraging. You can always trust God. You can rely on God. But what ways does God expect us to trust Him? And in what institutions and powers should we not trust? I think you can come up with a big list yourself. Let's turn to Mark, the 10th chapter, to find uh, Jesus' warning in what we should not trust. Mark, the 10th chapter, and starting with verse 17. Mark 10 and verse 17. The heading here is, Jesus counsels the rich young ruler. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Did you notice that of those five commandments, one is missing? It's the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. So since Jesus didn't mention it, then, of course, it's not uh, valid today, is it? Because we are arguing from silence. That's why Protestants reason that, well, Jesus didn't mention it. Why didn't he mention it? Because it was going to be an object lesson for this rich ruler. That was the rich ruler's problem, as you see. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, No, Jesus loved him. You might just think, well, you're in that position too. Does he love you? Galatians 2.20, of course, mentions that he loved us. One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. But the rich man was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He made the wrong choice. He still had that covetousness in his heart. And he didn't trust Christ and want to put his treasure in heaven. So we are told not to trust in riches. Let's look here on uh, Mark verse uh, 24. Mark 10 verse 24. Well, we'll start with verse 23, continuing with the story. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we've had articles in the past, you know, many years ago, Mr. Armstrong, I think, wrote an article, Does God Hate the Rich? No, God doesn't hate the rich. Uh, God gives us power to get wealth, it tells us in, I believe, Deuteronomy. But God expects us to be faithful stewards of our possessions and to honor him first. Verse 24, And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. What should you not trust in? You should not trust in riches. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go in through the needle eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So one thing we should not put our trust in is riches. I won't turn there, but I'll just read it to you, where it says in Luke 11, verse 39, that... uh, The Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. So people trust in riches. They are greedy. And, of course, with our current 
financial crisis in the United States affecting the whole financial markets of the world, greed is a factor. Let's turn to 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter. 1 Timothy 6. Just spend a little more time on this theme of uh, riches. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Let's start with verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God gives us richly all things to enjoy, and those things are free. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Again, we have to be careful not to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God. And he gives us all things to enjoy. Just as James wrote in James 1.18, that every good and perfect gift uh, comes down from above from the Father of lights. That's James 1, verse uh, 17. I think I've quoted this to you before, but, uh, you know, the 50s had some very good songs. I don't know that I'll attempt to sing this one. This is by George Olson, 1927. The best things in life are free. We don't trust in riches. God gives us all things freely, as he ju- we just read. I'll just read it. The moon belongs to everyone. The best things in life are free. The stars belong to everyone. They gleam there for you and me. The flowers in spring. (laughs) The robins that sing. The moonbeams that shine. They're yours. They're mine. And love can come to everyone. The best things in life are free. It's a beautiful song. I'll have to uh, learn it better. But what caused this massive financial crisis in the United States? We've heard commentaries and discussions, talk shows about the causes of the subprime mortgage crisis. This is from WallStreetJournal.com, WallStreetJournal.com editors, the afternoon report bailed out. Quote, further details are expected to surface after an extraordinary summit meeting in the afternoon at the White House. President Bush, who spoke to the nation last night, uh, this was on uh, September 25th, the report, has summoned top lawmakers, including two presidential nominees, in an effort to impress on Congress and the American people the need to pass Treasury's $700 billion bailout plan. Now, they don't call it a bailout plan, they call it a rescue plan. Republican John McCain and Democrat Barack Obama have been sounding a similar warning, albeit with caveats. On Thursday, Senator McCain said the whole nation was in danger and that doing nothing wasn't an option. Senator Obama, in pressing action, added that it is, quote, outrageous, end of quote, that taxpayers must bear the burden for Wall Street, quote, greed and risk, end of quote, saying financial executives are also accountable. With the bailout plan advancing, investors took heart in afternoon trading that was uh, Thursday, The Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 277 points, or 2.6%. Well, that was Thursday. Yesterday, Friday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up 121 points. So investors are cautious, but they are hopeful. Now, Senator Obama used the term greed and risk. Did he point out a major problem of our major investment operations? Uh, Some of you have seen the movie Wall Street in which uh, featured an investor who said that greed is good. How many of you saw that movie, uh, Wall Street? Good, I see about 17.3% of you saw that movie, Wall Street. There are two versions of the quote from that uh, movie. The original was a real-life quotation that came from Ivan Bosky, and this was at UC Berkeley's School of Business uh, commencement address on... uh, May 18, 1986. So here is Ivan Bosky, a financier, and this is what he said at the University of California 
the School of Business Administration commencement exercises. Quote, greed is all right, by the way. I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still still feel good about yourself. <clears throat> is that true? Well, I just quoted uh, Luke 11.39, where Jesus said, Your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Uh, Jesus didn't put a positive spin on greed. No, you cannot be greedy and still feel good about yourself unless you are deceiving yourself. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And it might be worth noting that uh, Boski himself was later convicted of conspiring to file false documents with the federal government involving insider trading violations and agreed to pay $100 million in fine and illicit profits, in fines and illicit profits. So uh, Boski's quote inspired, inspired the uh, movie maker Oliver Stone to produce the 1987 movie Wall Street uh, featuring the character Gordon Gecko. And this is what Gecko said in the movie, quote, The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. Mark the upward surge of mankind. You know, you know what that characteristic is of the upward surge of mankind. Let's turn to 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter. Oh, well, right there. <clears throat> six Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So in one sense, Senator Obama accurately pointed out the problem of greed and risk on Wall Street. But let's understand that's not limited to Wall Street. Human nature is vanity, jealousy, lust, selfishness, and greed. And it's not limited to Wall Street. The Tenth Commandment says, you shall not covet. A greedy and a covetous and lustful nation will end up bankrupt. This is from uh, a column by Paul Craig Roberts, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury in the Reagan administration. And this appeared uh, in a column titled, The Collapse of American Power, March 18, 2008, by Paul Craig Roberts, a former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Quote, The fact of the matter is, the United States is bankrupt. David M. Walker, Controller General of the United States and Head of the Government Accountability Office in his December 17, 2007 report to the U.S. Congress on the financial statements of the United States gov government noted that, quote, the federal government did not maintain effective internal control over fa financial reporting, including safeguarding assets, and compliance with significant laws and regulations as of September 30, 2007. Roberts comments, in everyday language, the United States government cannot pass an audit. He goes on to say, moreover, the GAO report pointed out that the accrued liabilities of the federal government totaled approximately $53 trillion as of September 30, 2007. No funds have been set aside against this mind-boggling liability. Roberts concludes, just so the reader understands, $53 trillion is $53,000 billion. It's still mind-boggling. It's still hard to understand. But we have been irresponsible as a nation. We have not lived within our means. We have lusted. We have coveted. We have exemplified greed in all the financial institutions, and not only that, but in our normal society. One other article here I'll share with you, and this is uh, from the London Daily Telegraph, July 3rd, 2008, entitled, Ride the Market Storms with the Experts. 
quote, Barclays Capital warned clients to batten down the hatches for a worldwide financial storm, warning that the U.S. Federal Reserve has allowed the inflation genie out of the bottle and let its credibility fall below zero. Recently, RBS warned of share price falls that would be worse than the infamous Wall Street crash in 1929. We're in a nasty environment, said Tim Bond, Barclays Capital Chief Equity Strategist. There's an inflation shock underway. This is going to be very negative for financial assets. We're going into tortoise mode and are retreating into our shell. Investors will do well if they can preserve their wealth. So in what should you not trust? Do not trust in riches. God expects us to faithfully manage our finances. And those who are paying their tithes and giving their offerings, more, more or less, probably, probably, are faithful and know how to manage their finances and not just keep going on credit card debt. And God uh, gave us the principles, of course, of that stewardship of our finances in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, and in Luke 19, the parable of the minus. Let's turn to Malachi, the third chapter. Malachi 3. And you've read this dozens of times, but let's notice as we talk about the national financial crisis that we're facing, Malachi 3, and uh, starting with, with verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Now notice this in the context of our current crisis. Even this whole nation, this whole nation has robbed God. Just think what God's work could do with $700 billion. You know, we have preached the gospel pretty powerfully around the world. But the nation is cursed because the nation has robbed God. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now at this, says the eternal of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will be no room enough to receive it. So God promises that blessings and he will promise, he does promise to provide our every need, of course, if we do our part. That's Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We're not to trust in riches. What else should we not trust in? Let's turn to Isaiah, the 31st chapter. Isaiah 31. Of course, Israel was supposed to have trusted in God for military protection, or let's say for protection, period. But Israel didn't have the faith, so they wanted to have an army. And God said, okay, if you're not going to trust in me, uh, then we'll have to have certain regulations concerning conscription and concerning a military organization. But Israel did not trust God, even though God time and time again showed them that he could protect them without their having military forces. Isaiah 31, here and start in verse 1. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots. Again, we're talking about the word trust. In whom do you put your confidence? In whom do you rely? What institutions do you rely upon? God says, Woe to those who trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Eternal. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster, and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers, and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men, and not God. And their horses are flesh, and not spirit. When the Eternal stretches out his hand, both he, he who helps will fall, and he who is helped will fall down. They will all perish together." recent sermons, we've documented God's power and victory for his people. He saved Israel from Pharaoh's army in a miraculous way. He saved uh, Jerusalem when uh, the Assyrians came down and besieged the city. And God sent an angel and killed 185 soldiers. 
And when they awoke in the morning, they were all dead. Well, in the, that's in the King James. In the New King James, uh, when they awoke in the morning, there were all the dead corpses. God took care of them, and God took care of 338,000 British troops in, uh, in World War II and evacuated them from Dunkirk when, of course, uh, Hitler was about ready to eradicate or imprison all of those British soldiers. But God intervened and, of course, caused clouds overhead. Dr. Torrance wrote an article, Seven Fatal Blunders of Hitler, and one of those blunders was that he wanted the um, Luftwaffe to have the glory of eradicating the British troops, but God prevented those airplanes from attacking the British by cloud cover. And uh, he told the, the tank uh, soldiers, the commanders, we don't want you to stay back, don't attack. They just let them slip out of their hands. And, of course, the second great miracle was the calm seas of the British, the English Channel. And so 338,000 troops were saved from uh, Dunkirk and brought back to uh, Britain to fight another day. Psalm 20 and verse 7, I'll just uh, quote it to you. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Eternal, our God. Today our chariots, of course, uh, on the domestic scene are automobiles. We have millions and millions of them around the nation, and we've experienced a gasoline shortage here in Charlotte, in the North Carolina region. Some others across the country have had no problems whatsoever, but there are long lines of cars that queue up at gas stations where there is gas and wait up to two hours, and it was reported in the paper that um, nerves are on edge, one individual had a gun and uh, was going to force his way in, but the police finally arrested him. One report mentioned that some cars even shadow the gasoline tankers and follow them to find out what gas station has fuel. On our way in this morning on Lawyer's Road, uh, there was the one gas circle K that has been closed for several days, finally got uh, some gasoline, and there will line up of about 30 cars as we pass by on our way to services. Leviticus, the 26th chapter, comments on what is going to happen to our, our highways. And we get a little hint of that. Uh, Mr. McNair mentioned in his announcements about uh, uh, free access on our highways. Of course, it's, we're just getting a hint of that. Leviticus, the 26th chapter, starting with verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children. Remember, there was one incident, I think about a year ago, up in the North Carolina mountains where a bear did attack a, a child and killed it. Of course, not very uh, frequent now. Destroy your livestock and make you few in number. And notice the end of verse 22, and your highways shall be desolate. We realize when you don't have gasoline, you can't get to work. And quite a few people did stay home from work uh, the past couple days. Some stayed home from schools because they didn't have gasoline in their vehicles and weren't unable to travel to work or travel to school. Many more people took advantage of public transportation. The... Uh, comic strip uh, this morning, uh, Lockhorns. Lockhorns, for those of you who don't know, is a uh, continuing saga of a husband and wife who have conflicts, and they're always criticizing one another. And uh, in this one particular comic strip, the wife is sitting in front of her computer, and uh, the husband looking really uh, distraught, and she says, well, because of the high cost of gasoline, I'm going to stay home all day today and shop online. So I don't know that the older days it might have uh, caused some economies in the household, but not today. But it's going to be, uh, you get that feeling uh, that there are there is coming the time when the highways are going to be desolate. God says, some trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our God. What else should we not trust in? Let's turn to Isaiah 42. Isaiah, the 42nd chapter. Isaiah 42, starting with verse 17. And this is a warning against uh, idols. 
It says in verse 17, the previous verses show how God's going to help uh, the blind and the lame and help his people. And those who have gone after idols will repent. Isaiah 42, verse 17. They shall be turned back. They shall be greatly ashamed. Who trust in carved images. Who say to the molded images, you are our gods. Any one of us can have idols. What we covet, what we lust after, becomes an idol. Maybe drug abuse or pornography or alcohol abuse. It says in Colossians 3, verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So the Tenth Commandment is certainly active and in place today. I would suggest if you have access to a congregation sermon library or our website, I encourage you to listen to Mr. Carl McNair's sermon, Idols of the Heart, number 122. It was given on uh, March 24th, 2001. It's an excellent uh, sermon. But we must be recognized that at any time an idol can start in our heart. We can begin to have idols. So, brethren, do not trust in carnal things that you might covet after. Don't trust in images or anything that can give you a sinful pleasure. Trust in God, not in possessions, power, or position. In what other institutions or powers should we not trust? Should not trust in images or in those things that we covet that become idols. Second Corinthians, the first chapter. Second Corinthians, the first chapter. You've heard of e- egomaniacs, um, egoists, and this touches on that concept. Second Corinthians one, starting with verse eight. The heading is uh, subheading is delivered from suffering. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So what else should you not trust in? You should not trust in yourself in certain ways. Obviously, you trust in God. You should know yourself to know your strengths, to know your weaknesses, to know what you can depend on, that you have integrity, that you're reliable, whatever your job or in your family relations. Yes, you can trust in what God has done through you, but not trust in yourselves for everything that in this particular case to deliver this person from uh, death or from uh, trials, we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that we he st- will still deliver us. Yes, you can trust that God will still deliver us. Verse 11, you also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Do not trust in yourself. But what should you trust in? We've already read it twice in the section here already. Whom we trust, that is God in whom we trust, but in God who raises the dead here in Second Corinthians. So we trust in the one who can deliver us. Can you trust God to rule the universe? No, he's from eternity to eternity. How would you describe God's greatness? Let's turn to uh, Matthew, the 16th chapter, Matthew 16. It's comforting when you come to know who and what God is and his relationship to you and to the church. Here in Matthew, the 16th chapter, he gives us an awesome promise. Matthew 16 And verse 18, we find here that God is so powerful that not even death can prevail against his church. Matthew 16 and verse 18, And I say unto you that you are Peter, that is a small rock, 
and upon this rock, Petra or Petra, a giant crag of a rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against God's church. That's how powerful God is. I've shared this with you before, but what is the greatest fact? That was one of Mr. Armstrong's questions many years ago, and uh, it's just in three words. I think it summarizes the Bible in a very special way. The three words of the greatest fact is God rules supreme. And of course, that says volumes of who and what God is, what his authority is. He rules supreme. He maintains his creation. He rules over it. God is El Shaddai. And of course, it tells us in Revelation 19 and about verse 7 that for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Omnipotent meaning all powerful. So you can remember that, that we're making, we're making ourselves ready for Christ's coming, not through our own power, but through the power of Christ for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. If you were to turn somewhere in your Bible to show God's power and greatness, what chapter would immediately come to mind, or what verse? There are two chapters, Romans 1 and Isaiah 40. Let's take a look at Isaiah 40 here to see how God describes his power and omnipotence and his greatness. And we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but I would encourage you to read all of chapter 40 carefully, mark it up, underline it, uh, circle key words and phrases, as it's just very, very encouraging, very inspiring, where he says, even in verse 1, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. And, of course, the voice crying in the wilderness was John the Baptist, and Mr. Armstrong came in that same mission to prepare the way, and we're carrying on with that same mission, to prepare the church, the world, and ourselves for the return of Christ. But notice here later on, where he describes so many sections. Verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? Then he talks about idols that are made. Verse 21, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. It makes the judges of the earth useless. Then uh, later on here, see, uh, verse 28, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the eternal, the creator of the ends of the earth never faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. Are you weak? To those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the eternal shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So God is the one who is the creator. And when you take a look at uh, any of the websites like a NASA website that uh, or the Hubble uh, telescope website, and you see all these glorious uh, wonderful galaxies, the spiral nebula and uh, the crab nebula. and They may not have the greatest names to them, but they are fantastically beautiful uh, when you look at them. And I hope you do. And you realize that of all these galaxies, 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars, that's an understatement of the state and description of the universe. And here's this tiny little speck out in space called planet Earth, spaceship Earth. And yet God created human beings to place on that, that little planet, as an environment to create in us his perfect, righteous, and glorious character, his holy character. When you realize, as some philosophers have come to understand, when they look out at the universe, they say, God created the universe 
as an environment for human beings. Because only human beings, not animals, can even fathom where this universe is going, seeing galaxies flying out into space at 100 million miles an hour. God is still in control. He owns the universe. He created the universe. And not only that, he maintains the universe. Let's turn to Hebrews, uh, the first chapter. He sustains the universe. Hebrews, the first chapter. Of course, Hebrews is the priesthood book. Hebrews 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, Hebrews 1, verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. We're co-heirs with him, as it says, remember, in Romans, the eighth chapter. If we belong to God, if we're his children, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, and God and Christ is heir of all things. So what does that make you? Heir of all things, co-heir with Christ, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, that is Christ being the brightness of God's glory, and the express image of his person, and here the Greek word is character, the only place in the Bible where the word character in the Greek appears, and upholding all things by the word of his power, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, have become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, the Moffat translation uh, uses the word universe. But in these last days, Moffat translation, at the end he has spoken to us by a son, a son whom he has appointed heir of the universe, the New King James, all things, which is the Greek ta panta, meaning the universe, as it was by him that he created the world, that is Christ, God created the world through him. He, Christ, reflecting God's great glory and stamped with God's own character, sustains the universe with his word of power. That's the one in whom you can put your trust. God is great. He rules supreme. He's omnipotent. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. You can trust in God's greatness. How else can we trust in God? We can trust in his awesome promises that he gives us. Let's uh, continue here and... Hebrews 1, sorry, let's see, this is Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6, starting with verse 13, the subhead is God's infallible purpose in Christ, and again, brethren, this is so encouraging and when you know who God is, that he sustains the universe, that it's under his control, even though it seems like it's infinite and just uh, seems to have no end in the universe, we have this comfort, and he gives us comfort in these promises. Verse 13 of uh, Hebrews 6, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he swore by no one greater, he swore by himself. So God doesn't have to swear by himself, but he did to give us comfort and assurance, reassurance, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply you. It was a promise to Abraham, and his descendants have been multiplied. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. How do you solve problems? You flip a coin or you come to an agreement and uh, make an oath that they did in old times. Verse 17, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, who are the heirs of promise? You and me. The immutability of his counsel, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Though he didn't have to confirm it by an oath, 
but he's trying to give us double assurance, if you will, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation, who have fled from refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. God keeps his promises, and we are the heirs of his promises. Turn to Second Peter, the first chapter. Second Peter 1. If you're feeling discouraged, I would encourage you to, as I have in the past, to search the treasure house of pearls of promise. The Bible is filled with treasures of promise, pearls of promise, golden guarantees, I've called them. But here in Second Peter, he tells us this. Second Peter 1, starting with verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have attained like precious faith, with us by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power, we've talked about His power, He's omnipotent, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's begotten us by His Spirit. Of His own will begat He us by a word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That's James 1, verse 18 in the King James Version. So he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue, by which have been given to us, and you should have this underlined in your Bible, exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The greatest miracle of all is conversion. Well, you can say there are other great miracles, of course, as well. The resurrection of Christ, which is again there implied in Hebrews, the sixth chapter we just read, um, by the fact that Christ came up from the dead. He was the one who gave the oath and to Abraham, the God of the Old Testament. But God has given us these exceedingly great and precious promises that we can be partakers of his divine nature. The old uh, Roman uh, Caesars, uh, some of them said they were God. They were divine. They weren't divine. They were carnal. They influenced by Satan, some of them. Most of us, of course, have been in the past. We were in Satan's world. He's the God of this world. But God has truly given human beings the privilege of being begotten by him, by his spirit. And he says, be you holy because I am holy. Conversion is a miracle. We need to pray for a deeper conversion to be more transformed, as we heard in the sermonette, to the very nature and mind and personality of Christ. And we're growing to be like him. So pray, brethren, that you can be more deeply converted, that we can be more responsive to Christ and his will. But God gives us promises. And we know there are tough times ahead, but we can face those times by being prepared and by trusting in God's promises. There are dozens of promises, but let's just take a look at one, given the times in which we live. Psalm 33. Psalm 33 and... Verse 18, Psalm 33. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. I've given several sermons on godly fear and godly reverence, and there are many, many blessings. The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy in the evil way do I hate, says in Proverbs 8.13 and um, Proverbs 18. 36, is it? The fear of the, and the fear of the Lord is strong confidence that his children will have a place of refuge. It's, uh, Proverbs, I think, 1836. You can correct me on that. But here he says, Behold, the eye of the eternal is on those who fear him for good 
You want God to watch over you and take care of you and protect you. On those who hope in His mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. You read uh, perhaps in your church bulletin uh, some of the effects that are happening in our agriculture in the United States and in Great Britain uh, where crops are just uh, mildewing and uh, are unable to be uh, harvested because of the uh, flooding, other reasons that are affecting uh, our agricultural produce in some of our nations. But God says he will keep you alive even during famine. Those who fear God, of course, and we need to do our part. We need to be prepared. We need to act on the sermons we've received. Dr. Meredith has written several times in the Living Church News and Tomorrow's World magazine about getting out of credit card debt, preparing for the future, and given us that admonition. He's given us uh, instructions to prepare our homes to make sure that we have the first aid kits if a great hurricane comes, as did here in Charlotte uh, many years ago. Is that Hurricane Hugo uh, that came through Charlotte uh, some years ago? And uh, you realize, look, if you don't have gasoline for your cars, you don't have electricity for your homes, uh, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to survive? I hope many of you, I've already asked several of you, and I think, how many of you have uh, one week's worth of water in your house? Okay. Oh, is it, that's dropped down. It was 90% before. Now it's down to 70%. What did you do? Drink your water? Oh, we should have at least a week's supply of water, uh, drinking water, in your home. And I hope all of you uh, are making those preparations. We've had sermons Along that line, sermon number 64, uh, titled Prepare for Tough Times Ahead by Dr. Meredith. So you've been encouraged, you've been exhorted, you've been instructed. Be prepared, a sermon I gave, number 374. And then the same title, uh, number 459 by Mr. Rod McNair, Be Prepared. So brethren, you're not going to have any excuses when times come and we have another Hurricane Hugo or other problems and you're not prepared. Let's understand you've been encouraged, you've been instructed. But let's understand again, as we just saw in the promise here of Psalm 33 and verse 19, that God will protect you during the times of famine. I'll just share with you a list of promises, and I won't turn to them, but God promises wisdom, knowledge, and understanding like silver, gold, and rubies. That's Proverbs 8. He promises us wisdom in James 1, 2, and 3. He promises us the ability and desire to overcome in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says that he is able to do abundantly, exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, Ephesians 3, 20. I could tell you several stories. I remember a secretary I had. Uh, she was a third tithe widow and assisted me, and she said, Mr. Ames, I really would like to, you know, travel. I haven't gone any place, and... Some friends have invited me up to Canada, but I haven't been able to go. And I said, well, and her name was not Mary, but I said, Mary, uh, just read the promise of Ephesians 3.20 and ask God to help you exceedingly abundantly of all you can ever think to ask or imagine and that God will provide you a way to visit your friend in Canada or wherever it was. Well, as it turned out, not only did she go to Canada, but she visited the offices of the Worldwide Church of God around the world. She went all the way around the world. I have not gone all the way around the world, <laughs> but she did, and she was a widow, you know, a spiritual widow, as we would call them. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we think to ask or imagine. He promises us not to be tempted above that which we are able, in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He promises us protection to the end, Psalm 91. He promises us correction in the Correction with Love chapter, Hebrews 12. He promises us forgiveness in 1 John 1 and verse 9. He promises us healing in Matthew 8 and 9 and 10. He promises us happiness, Psalm 145, verse 15. He promises us peace of mind. You know that section that we keep emphasizing, Philippians 4, verses 6 through 8, to think on those things that are true and lovely and honest and just and pure. Then he promises us, and this is a fantastic, wonderful promise, freedom from condemnation. How many of you have lived 
under the oppression of guilt. And you know you're guilty. God promises freedom from condemnation in Romans 8 and verse 1. It's a wonderful gift that God gives us. He tells us in Romans 8.31, If God be for us, who can be against us? He promises, as I've already mentioned, that we are joint heirs with Christ in Romans 8, verse 17. He promises us healing. He promises His Holy Spirit, Luke 11, verse 13. He promises us the power to overcome in Ephesians 5.17. He promises us salvation as a free gift. He promises us in Hebrews 7.25 that Christ will always intercede for us because he is able to save them to the uttermost. I would encourage you to go treasure hunting in your Bible. Look up God's promises. We can grow in faith and trust in God because he tells us, of course, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Mr. Armstrong wrote back in 1973 a booklet that was very popular, What is Faith? And in one section he says uh, the importance of claiming a promise. I remember one time, Mr. Armstrong writes, several years ago, when my two sons came to me and asked me to do something for them. I don't remember now what. They were then around seven and nine years old. I do remember I didn't want to do it. But, Daddy, you promised, they said. And you've got to keep your promise. And then I remembered I had promised. Well, what do you think? Do you think I could break a promise when my two sons came to me and put it like that? No, and if you'll just as boldly tell God he promised and then claim that promise is applied to your case and trust God to keep it and quit worrying about it, quit trying to work up faith, Just relax and let God take over from there. Leave it with Him. Let Him do it. He'll do it every time. He went on to say in another section, "The work, this work is a living example of faith. Why, this very work we conduct is a direct answer to prayer. It has been from the start 100% a work of faith, and we had to really learn this lesson of faith before it had even started. So God has given us exceeding great and precious promises. We need to study those promises. We need to claim those promises. Of course, it tells us in Hebrews 4.16 to come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain grace and mercy to help in time of need. You ever needed mercy and grace? I do frequently, and I claim that promise frequently. Of course, we claim that promise in... Christ's name, because he said in John 14, 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Yes, in God we trust. We have in our hymnal, page 130, all hail the power of Jesus' name. And as we were singing this morning, my, my wife and I were looking, knowing that uh, the sermon was on in God we trust. We sang number 38, God is my rock. And the last verse says, trust and rely, not on extortion and gain. So we uh, we smiled at each other. And then uh, there was another one, uh, blessed is the nation God is for. I think that's the one, uh, the very last phrase, uh, Psalm 33 and page 23, who wait for him, who hope for him, those who trust in the God of Israel, we sang this morning. So how strong is your faith? Remember that Jesus berated his audience for their worrying about physical things. And he said, oh, you of little faith. Then he focused on the goal, Matthew 6, 33, to seek first the kingdom of God. Mr. Meredith wrote in the booklet, Do You Believe the True Gospel? about our trust and our faith in God. He says, the gospel embraces God's entire plan of salvation. It is a message centered on who and what God is and the purpose he's working out through humanity. The fulfillment of this purpose for each of us individually rests on our willingness to trust in Christ. That's from Do You Believe the True Gospel by Dr. Meredith, page 35. God has given us as a church a mission to preach the gospel to the world. And we are doing that. Christ is opening up new doors. We just set a record 
this past week on BET, Black Entertainment Network, uh, with a record response. We are looking forward to a milestone this coming November, December issue of Tomorrow's World magazine for a print run of 400,000 and more. We've been looking forward to a milestone of 300,000. Now we're reaching that milestone of 400,000 of the printing of Tomorrow's World magazine. So we're very thankful for that. Years ago, uh, Dr. Meredith uh, gave a quotable quote, which I remember in the uh, ambassador portfolio in Big Sandy. It says, uh, saturate your mind with the word of God. When we do that, it gives us hope, it gives us faith to do the work and to accomplish the work. In the New King James Version, the word trust occurs in the Old Testament 107 times. I encourage you to do a Bible study on the topic of trust. And I think you'll be greatly encouraged by that study. Let's turn to Proverbs, the third chapter. Proverbs 3, one that I remember up at the Living Youth Camp, they had a topic session, and campers were asked, what is your favorite scripture? And I remembered this young lady uh, getting up and giving this as her favorite scripture, which is one of my favorite scriptures out of hundreds of favorite scriptures, Proverbs 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't try to work it out your own way. Let God work it out for you. God's work is a work of faith. And we have to put our trust in God to complete that work as he works through us. He's promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. Dr. Meredith reminded us this past week in the phone conversations that God has promised us that he will be with us to the end of the age. And in that telephone conference, he also told us that Christ is watching who is loyal to him and asking, who wants to be a part of my team? Because we are a team and we are a family working together to fulfill the mission that God has given his church. Dr. Meredith also said, and I wrote down as a quotable quote, God is creating an eternal team to work together in the family of God. It's a beautiful operation, a beautiful work that God is doing through all of us as we yield to him, as we trust in him, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So we have an incredible opportunity, an incredible responsibility to prepare the world, the church, and ourselves for the coming of Christ. We pray that all of the nations around the world could live up to the motto, in God we trust. But the world puts its trust in riches, human power, images, idols, military power. But God's people know their God. God is the creator of heaven and earth. And they know the Savior whom they trust. So brethren, let's grow in the faith of Christ. Let's rejoice in our God who is faithful, the faithful God. And as the people of God, we can always say, in God we trust.